Answer me a question this morning. As you look back over music in the last 30 years, some of you are much more about the music than you are the football, right? So I'm kind of a musician. I enjoy the football, but we'll talk music for a minute. Name that tune, or before you even name that tune, just go back in your mind and tell me the song that impacted you the most that contains the theme of loneliness. Or just name a song that has lonely in it. Okay, raise, raise your hand. All by myself. Yep. One is the loneliest number, Three Dog Night. Only you. That one, yeah, okay, all right. Oh, yeah, so lonely. They just repeat it. So lonely. It just keeps happening, right? Okay, all right, what else? Heartbreak Hotel, living on a street called Lonely, right? Yeah, okay. Lonely, I missed a lonely. Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty current song, right? Yeah, okay. Any others? Yeah. Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby, that's a pretty lonely sign. I look at all the lonely people. Well, how about this one? This was mid-60s. A winter's day in deep... And dark December, I am alone, gazing from my window to the streets below on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow. I am a rock. I am an island. I've built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship, for friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one, and no one touches me. I am a rock. I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And an island never cries. Why the fascination with lonely songs? Why was this song such a hit? Have people really gotten over the truth that loneliness is hard? How powerful was it when right after Heartbreak Hotel swept the charts in the 60s, Carol King and James Taylor, our own James Taylor, came along with, you've got a friend. Lonely Heart Club, the owner of a lonely heart. Mr. Lonely, this song that was just referred to over here, had 46 million hits on YouTube. Why? Let's see what the information generation can tell us. This from Psychology Today, May 2nd, 2009. Dr. John Cacciapo, Ph.D. It is what we say we value more than anything else. In surveys to determine the factors that contribute most to human happiness... Respondents consistently rate connection to friends and family, love, intimacy, and social affiliation above wealth or fame or even above physical health. This should come as no great surprise. Now, Dr. Chapo says, We are social animals descended from a common ancestor that gave rise to all other social primates. So it should be no surprise, right? Monkeys get along in the woods, so we should too. Thank you for that. 
It may well be that the need to send and receive, interpret and relay increasingly complex, complex social cues is what drove the evolution of our expanded cerebral cortex, the reasoning part of the brain. After all, it is our ability to think, to pursue long-term objectives, and to form bonds and act collectively that allowed us to emerge as the planet's dominant species. <laughs> now, let's move on from the little evolutionary spot here. Despite their genuine human desire to connect, millions of people are predisposed to undermine social connection. Despite their best efforts, they alienate rather than engage others. And yet these people are no more or less attractive than anyone else. And their problem is not lack of social skill. Hmm, I wonder what causes that, doctor. Is it possible, in fact, highly likely to feel lonely in a bustling corporate office? Talent, financial success, fame, even adoration offers no protection from the subjective experience. Janis Joplin, who was as shy and withdrawn off stage as she was raucous and explosive on stage, said shortly before her death that she was working on a tune called, I just made love to 25,000 people, but I'm going home alone. Three of the most idolized women in the 20th century were Judy Garland, Marilyn Monroe, and Princess Diana. And they were famously lonely people. And yet a fourth, Greta Garbo, was famous for saying, I want to be alone. Which serves to remind us that there's nothing inherently problematic about solitude in and of itself. However, loneliness isn't about being alone. It's about not feeling connected. Well, ladies and gentlemen, God knew this. He is a God of community. In fact, one of the great mysteries of the Godhead is the powerful image of the Trinity. God in three persons. This idea of God in fellowship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the single dominant image of divine community. Remember, it was God, the Trinity, who made us. If you want to look in on that, look in Genesis at the very first couple of pages of the Bible with me. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Genesis 1.26 is a very powerful verse of Scripture because it reminds us that God is in community. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Who'd at us? Jesus was there. Remember what John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 said? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was the beginning with God. All things were made by him. So Jesus was at creation. We know the Father was there because he was speaking truth in. You look back at verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, and it says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. All three persons of the Trinity were obviously present in creation. God in three, made in his image, made us not to be alone either. That's why he walked with Adam in the cool of the day. This is why he brought animals to Adam to fellowship with him. 
But Adam still found that he was alone. You see, we can't just evolve into a creature that can fellowship with us. Animals don't have that capacity that God gave to man. Because when God created man, he created man in his image. Let your evolution teachers deal with that. The truth is, when God made a woman, he made her because chapter 2, verse 18, one page over, says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And one of the fundamental concepts in this world, and the very first time we hear God talk about something not being good, had to do with loneliness. You see, that ends up resonating in our hearts, doesn't it? None of us like to feel lonely. None of us like that sense of being left out, being put aside, being separated from the group. Why do you think teachers used that for centuries as their main mantra for discipline? You go stand in a corner alone by yourself and think about that. Go up to your room. You can't come out for a long time. You just go and spend some time thinking about that. Solitary confinement in prison. Why is it such a big deal? Solitude's good, but loneliness isn't. We're made to live in community. As the story of the Bible unfolds, we see men form in community. And when they do it God's way, with God's blessing, there's joy celebration, strength for hard times, a good life. And whenever sin enters the picture, there's separation, fighting, pain, bitterness, revenge, jealousy, chaos, and emptiness. In fact, one of the greatest images of God's people, the children of Israel, are the pages and pages of governmental regulations given by which the people should live together in harmony. And you know what was included in those regulations? Parties. Lots of them. In fact, the people were taxed annually in the nation of Israel just to pay for these national week-long or longer parties. At least three times a year, the people would gather and celebrate for a really long time. Everyone in the country was required to show up and celebrate. Look at Exodus 23 sometime, 14 and 19, and that's the beginning of that, and you'll see it then weave its way all through Exodus and Leviticus. God wanted people to understand, remember, and celebrate who he is and what he had done for them, and to understand that the pinnacle of life is when we're in fellowship with one another. Talk about living and loving the life. Have you ever been to a family reunion or a church homecoming? I remember when I was a small child, We lived in Lexington, North Carolina, where my dad was a music and youth pastor there. That's right, where I was born. I'm a native, y'all. But at our church each summer, we'd have what was called homecoming day. How many of you have ever been to a homecoming day at a church before? Okay, maybe about 10% of you. Homecoming was really awesome. It was usually set at the end of August so that when families were coming in for their vacation, um, they could all gather at church that weekend. They'd perhaps bring back old pastors and old singing groups and have this, you know, elongated service on Sunday morning. And then we'd go out to what I remember the best as a small child, dinner on the grounds. It was a 
feast. I mean, ladies would bring these great big rectangular dishes with these really ooey-gooey, wonderful stuff in them. There was fried chicken everywhere. And then there was one table that to a four or five-year-old probably looked as long as from here to that door of nothing but desserts. Banana pudding, coconut cake, fruit, fruit, fruit. I'm a fruit nut. Um, Just, it was wonderful. Now imagine doing that for an entire week and it's subsidized by your federal government. Isn't that crazy? That was God's nation. And that's what he gave to his people. Why would anyone ever want to leave that? Only because of sin, my friends. Because sin separates. Sin causes division. Sin causes nation envy. That's what pulled Israel down. We want a king. We want an army. We want better houses. We want protection. We, we, we want their gods. We want their lives. And in living lives of covetous envy, they stopped celebrating. And they began to forget. What feasts? What God? What history? God warned them over and over again through the prophets. Please don't forget me. I'm a jealous God. No other gods before me, remember? But they didn't listen. So God did judge them. And they lost their land, their houses, their places of worship, their kings, and ultimately their freedom. And that's where Jesus entered the picture 430 years later. Jesus came and he proclaimed a new way. Follow me and the truth will set you free. And you know what one of the first things Jesus did when he started his ministry? He immediately began putting people back together in community. He gathered a few men together who were known as his disciples. But you know what he called them? My friends. They grew close. They shared meals. They went to parties. They did life together. And the only thing that separated them was death. Because Jesus knew that the only way that he could ultimately bring men and women back together with God was by his death sacrifice that he could offer on their behalf to bridge the gap between man and God, sin and perfection, a holy God appeased by a righteous sacrifice, which is the sacrifice of Christ. Christ died to bring us back to God, First Peter tells us. And then, as we sang so wonderfully this morning, because he was stronger than death, Jesus conquered death by rising from the dead. And almost immediately, did what? He went looking for his friends. Joined them in a mourner's meeting in an upper room. Made breakfast for them on the beach. He made time to be with them. And the last thing he did before he left earth was, he told them, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to leave my spirit with you. So that you'll know that I am with you always. It's in this context that Jesus made the statement. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The word church comes from a Greek word ekklesia meaning gathering or assembly. The church is the gathering of believers. When we come together we are the church. When we meet in heaven someday, we'll be the universal church gathered in one place with him. 
when we meet together here on Sundays, when we gather in life groups, when we meet for men's fraternity, when we get together to women's retreat, we are the church. And Jesus said, I will restore community to this world through the gatherings of my people, through the church. Now, if you would turn with me over to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to pick up the story right there. Actually, picking up where Brian left the story off last week and flow right into this next discipline, the discipline of living in community. Take your Bibles and look at the text. Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts falls right after the Gospels in the New Testament. Last week, we spent time talking about baptism, the celebration of Jesus' work in a person's life. And so as we finished last week, we actually read verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. What happens after baptism for the believer? Well, according to this passage, they were added Well, what were they added to? Who was adding them? How did that come about? What was going on here? Ladies and gentlemen, this is the birth of the church. This is how church started. How did it happen? We're not sure exactly, but somebody cared enough about that gathering to have counted, to have known that there were 3,000 men in that place who gave their hearts and lives to Jesus, and they were connected together as a body. And what you see woven into the next five or so verses in Acts are some of the characteristics of what brought about this community. Now, I would think that when someone changes something as significantly as the shift from Israel and the economy of God meeting with men as they did to the church, it would be important to see what changed, right? So why don't we begin this discussion of community by looking at what drew this group together. What drew them together was the gospel and the reception of that gospel as they received his word. But what held them together? Read this passage with me now as we find out. We begin in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Let's stop here for just a moment. We're going to learn something important here. There are four specific things they devoted themselves to. First, they're stated, and then they're amplified. And if you'll take your notes out, you're going to notice they're two-sided today. But just have a look at the side that has blanks on it. What's on the back is a bonus, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, all right? But let's just begin by filling in these four items that were critical Because they were what this church was devoted to. First of all, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They learned it together. The apostles, you see, took the time to teach them what they had learned from Christ himself. And they ate it up. Not only did it say that they devoted themselves to it, but it says in verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were coming to the temple often to hear the teaching of these apostles. They got together a lot. It was a big deal. They were not only devoted just to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship. 
It's a word that talks about sharing that which is in common. They lived life together. They ate. They hung out. They shared resources. Look at verse 44 in the same passage. It says here that all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Their belief in Christ Jesus united them as a group of individuals. They were drawn together in life. We're going to talk some more about this unity as we go on throughout this hour. But this fellowship that they shared points back to the original fellowship that God had with Adam in the garden. It points back to what God wants to restore in our hearts, to take away the loneliness and give us back relationship. And that begins vertically as we reunite with Christ in having a relationship of joy with him. But it extends to his body, to other believers who are of the same mind as us, as we connect together. The third of these characteristics was that they broke bread together. It was the breaking of bread. Verse 42 says it there again. The apostles teaching to fellowship to the breaking of bread. Remember the feasts we talked about in the Old Testament? These believers began sharing a new feast. Some even called that feast the agape feast. Brian talked about it last week as the Lord's Supper. An important chance for us to remember and rejoice in the redemption that Christ had brought them together. This too was a uniting thing as they were all bonded together by the joy of their salvation in a sacrificial savior. Verse 46 says they were breaking bread from house to house. This was happening all throughout the community and all throughout the neighborhood. They not only would share in the Lord's Supper, but they would sit down and have extended meals together. Imagine that, families eating together. When's the last time your family actually, all of you, sat down and ate at the same table together? Don't raise your hands. It's getting more rare, isn't it? And what a joyful time it is when we can get together and share stories of life and connect together. When we can hear about and and know about the things that God is doing in life. It was one of the greatest memories that I had as a child. Now, my folks were pretty rigid about that. And and, uh, parents, I'd encourage you to, no matter how scattered your families get, Just make a couple of them mandatory through the week, okay? You're not missing Sunday afternoon, Tuesday night, Friday night, whatever night you can figure out with all the crazy schedules that are going on. Because, guys, it matters. When we can gather together and spend time face-to-face sharing what God has given by his grace, it gives great opportunity for us to commune and be forced at least as you're sharing those common common elements, to communicate at a table. There's great meaning in their fellowship relative to their celebrations. It's another one of the reasons why the feasts are such a big deal in the Old Testament. Each of the elements in those feasts had specific meaning. Where they stayed, how they prepared the food, what they did with it when they shared it, it's pretty significant. All of it pointed back to the joy of a sovereign God who was moving in their midst. These gatherings led to worship as they praised God, verse 47, and had favor with all the people. The fourth of the elements that they committed themselves to in verse 42 is they committed themselves to prayer. This became more than just the daily temple prayers. 
These actually had to do with prayers together in their homes for one another. We see examples of this prayer all throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Amazing testimonials of extended prayer times where God worked mightily. So what were the results of these characteristics in their lives? Well, first of all, the church was unified. All those who had believed were in common. They, had, they were together and they had all things in common. Verse 44. Day by day, they continued with one mind in the temple. The church was unified. Ephesians 4 remind us that when the church is at its best, we're unified. But Paul says there that this unity takes work, takes diligence, sacrifice, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerating one another, and loving one another. Then you achieve unity. God was also magnified among the people. God was magnified among the people. It says here that in verse 47, as they took their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, they praised God and they had favor with all the people. That's a broader range there. This is not just talking about the Christians. God actually gave them an opportunity to have favor with the people in their community. How do we know that? Well, because of the third characteristic, which is next. The gospel multiplied. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, these gatherings weren't, weren't just cliquish, cultish, let's separate from the rest of the world and get inside of our own little commune and hang out. These guys were doing life together with anyone in the community who wanted to join them. In fact, that became one of the hallmarks of their celebrations. They would invite others in who did not know. And every day they would be exposed to the redeemed, restored to fellowship with God. And that had a huge impact on their lives. This was real stuff. This wasn't like Friends. Friends was known as one of the most popular sitcoms in the 90s. Because Friends gave back... What the boomers took away as families were crushed by one divorce after another, one abuse case after another, one difficult situation after another. What happened on the TV show Friends? Well, a group of people who happened to work together began gathering and hanging out enough that they actually became extended family to one another. By the end of the show, the end of the last season of Friends, you would have thought you were at a family reunion. Babies, aunts, uncles, it looked like a family reunion, right? Because these guys had grown so close. Unfortunately, that's a sitcom. What's happening here is real. This is way past Friends. This looks like a lot like the Thessalonian church who were sold out to Christ. Listen to what Paul said about them. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Paul said, you guys are so good, we could stop preaching. Your example and your light for Christ is beaming. You're on fire. So what would it look like to be a part of a church like that? Could I join a church like that? Or would I mess it up if I did? Well, I'd like to show you a profile of a really good team member in an environment like that.
turn over, if you would, to Colossians chapter 4 for an unusual look at one of Paul's team members. In the epistles, Ephesians, then Philippians, then Colossians. And while you're turning there, let me use this as an opportunity to let you in on a little bit of the team ministry that we have here with you. We're so excited to be sharing at Northwest in this role of spiritual formation. And this, as many of you know, is only one aspect of our current ministry. Carol and I have begun a ministry group which gives us an opportunity to work with and input into the lives of young churches like yours as well as new churches an opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission by building missional teams into churches. Churches that are gospel fluent, equipped with the word, and prepared then to reproduce disciples and churches for God's glory. We call this ministry 412 Ministries. Dave, why do you call this 412 Ministries? Well, we ended up founding our ministry on five key passages of Scripture that happen to have the reference 412. You're about to look at one of them with us. Now, if you remember the acrostic teach, you can remember those five characteristics. The first is 1 Timothy 4.12, where we're seeking to build godly character into the individual's lives, much like Paul said to Timothy there. The second is Ephesians 4.12, as we're involved in equipping the body of Christ and building them up as God would call us to. The third is uh, activating gospel-fluent believers, as we look at Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, neither is there salvation in any other. The fourth, the one we're looking at this morning, is Colossians 4.12, where we're endeavoring to build a team environment or cultivate a spirit of community among the body of Christ. And the fifth is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which takes us to handling the word of God as we should as believers, understanding that Scripture is our foundation for ministry, and it forces us forward. So we take those five objectives and we're seeking to build those into communities of faith that are accomplishing what God has called them to do. What I've found, ladies and gentlemen, is this. The church of Jesus Christ is in crisis, especially in our society. It's become increasingly a lonely place to be because there are many who now view church as an event not as a culture of family and community. Their event is on Sunday mornings or for some of them Saturday night, right? They'll go and and they'll turn on their remote and watch the service and when they're done, they'll turn it off and if that show's not good enough, they'll switch churches and go to another place where there's a little better show and, and then when they're done, that's the end of their week, right? Paul calls us to a completely different relationship with individuals and he describes that relationship through a very interesting passage here as he talks about an excellent team member who he had worked with. And I'm going to share four of the characteristics of a really good team member as we talk about Epaphras here, or um, in the south as they call him, Epaphras. Okay? We're actually going to give him a nickname here in just a few minutes. But I'd encourage you to apply these team characteristics to your life as well as you consider what being a part of community looks like. Here's what the passage has to say. Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in your prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. The first characteristic of Epaphras is he's committed to the church. He's one of your number. He's on the team. 
There are way too many football analogies in this church, although with my teams winning the way they are right now, I'm kind of dealing with football in a good way. Carolina, Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'm just saying. But suffice to say, when you join a team, one of the first things that happens is the coach sorts out all the players and where they're going to be, and then he gives them a number. All right? And you're identified the rest of your life by that number you're wearing. I was always number 11 on my team. Why? So you can be identified by the coach. So that you can be identified by the ref when you mess up. But most importantly, when you walk on the field, you don't look like the fans in the stands. You're wearing a jersey. You're on the team. You are the man that day. The players have jerseys on because they're a part of the team. Church history reveals that Epaphras was one of the first believers in Ephesus and probably started the church at Colossae. He's on the team. He's an individual who was sent out from Colossae to actually start two other churches that are mentioned in verse 13. But he never disconnected from their number. He just considered himself on the travel team. Notice the second trait. He volunteered to serve Christ. This term bond slave of Jesus Christ means that he was a willing servant of the Lord called to serve Christ with his life. We discussed a few weeks ago what this bond slave means. It's an individual who chooses a slave as his master. He wants to continue in the role that he's been given. This guy is a willing servant, sold out to the work of God. He wants to be serving. Third, he communicates regularly. Notice here he says he sends you his greeting. Good team members are good communicators. Winning teams communicate. Functional families stay in touch. Epaphras sent word back to his team through Paul. That was a critical part of his ministry. Healthy bodies are in touch with themselves. They know what's good and what is hurting. Very interesting analogy that Paul uses of the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about the different parts of the body when one is suffering, the rest of them know about it because of the central nerve system that runs through our bodies. It will alert the body when there's something going on, when there's a pain happening. And we hear it and we feel it and we say, ouch. And then we respond. We don't ignore that part of the body because to ignore it would bring peril, infection, sometimes even loss of limb. Good communication prevents that. No one more important than another. All sympathetic when another hurts. All for the good of the body. And the fourth of these characteristics is he prays intensely. Epaphras labored earnestly for them in his prayers. He worked hard at his commitment to pray for the sweet people that were a part of his former ministry. Are you connected like that to anybody? We need to be praying for one another. But what do we pray for? Well, let's look here at what Pappy prayed for. Don't you think that'd be a good nickname for Epaphras? He was like the church father at Colossae, right? His name's Epaphras. So we, we could call him Pappy. What do you think? Would that work? So, all right, let's look at what Pappy prayed for. He prayed that the believers in these assemblies might mature in their Christian faith. He prayed that you may stand. Stand versus sitting around. Stand versus being knocked down and not getting up. Stand versus stumbling. Stand versus running away. He also prayed for maturity in them, that they would be standing perfect, fully assured in all the will of God. Were they listening to the 
spirit of God? Were they confident in what they were doing and what God had called them to do? I'm impressed by the fact that Epaphras paid for all the believers in these three cities. And we're fortunate today if church believers remember to pray for their immediate family, let alone the believers in their life group, let alone the entire congregation, let alone what's happening around the world. It encouraged my heart greatly this week when this uh, Yusef, the brother in Iraq, I believe it's Iran, who stood up for his faith, there was a strong movement of prayer. And even in our life group, his name was brought up and we spent some significant time praying for this brother who's hundreds of miles away. Yet we're connected to him because of the body. What a joy to have a friend like that. Are you that kind of a team member? Are you committed to a church like that? Are you connected to a group of people that you love so much you'll join them, serve them, communicate with them, and pray like crazy for them on a regular schedule? If not, why not? All of these characteristics take time, you see. They take time with the people you're trying to serve. And that time requires being with them gathering, taking the time to get together, choosing to put the family of God in your schedule. This is the discipline of community. Harder for some than others because perhaps your personality may be of the type where you're not really prone to connect with others purposefully on a regular basis. You could be Mr. Lonely because you're really into solitude. In fact, you may recharge your batteries through solitude but you need people just like the rest of us. Others of us thrive on social environments. We can help those who need to work on that. In fact, the the author of Hebrews said it this way as he walked us through the lettuce patch of Hebrews 10. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? The writer of Hebrews spends nine and a half chapters proving the superiority of Christ as the Son of God. Then he goes into several imperatives that come out of this message with a series of exhortations where he says, let us, and then he'll give the exhortation. This happens at least eight times. Thus, the let us patch of Hebrews. That's your bonus. On the backside of your page, you'll see these eight different characteristics or actual um, encouragements that are given here by this speaker I'll list them all, and I'm going to leave them with you because they'd be a great personal Bible study sometime, or perhaps something you can dig into in a life group. Then we're going to camp out with just one of these for a few minutes as we uh, close our time together. Here they are. Look at chapter 10 of Hebrews, and we're just going to walk through these pretty quickly together. Or you can just look on the page, and that would work too. The first is 10.22, where it comes out of seeing that we have, seeing that we have. It's laid down this foundation of what Christ has done. Then it says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Why does he say it that way? Why doesn't he just say, you guys need to draw near? Well, because he knows it's not just for them. It's for all of us. These are instructions that I'm not just giving you this morning. I need these things as much as anyone. And so the writer is encouraging them together as a body to enjoin these things. The second is verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love 
and good deeds. We'll come back to that one in a moment. Chapter 11 gives us the hero's hall of faith. And then we jump over to chapter 12, verse 1, where because of this great cloud of witnesses, verse 2, at the end of verse 1, it says, let us run with endurance the race set before us. But first it says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that easily entangles. This one addresses the Achilles heel that each believer has. That returning monster that nags at our soul in the worst rhythm we can imagine. You go on to see 1228, let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all. Verse thir- chapter 13, let us go to him outside the camp. That is Jesus, the one who suffered was mocked and persecuted outside the gate in the place of shame. And finally, in 1315, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, let us go back to one of them. See, I'm a quick learner. How do we stimulate one another to love and good deeds, which is the word of chapter 10, verses 24 and 25? It says here, very simple, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. We get together, even though not all do. There are many who didn't, right? It was the habit of some not to get together. This is another indicator that this passage could have been written by Paul. Because Paul was pretty direct in what he had to say, right? He didn't cut... Corners, he didn't pull any punches. He just went right to it. Paul was not afraid to call people out. He called Peter out, remember? Called out the two ladies in Philippians, Odious and Stinky. I mean, you Odious and Syntyche. He called them out. He did it to Alexander the coppersmith. Why do we get together? Because we need to be stimulated to love and good works. That word stimulated has a lot to do with this... uh, block and piece of sand paper here. Now, one of the things I like to do when I have extra time for myself as a hobby is woodwork. Now, as you understand, many times you buy a piece of wood from the store and it's going to be pretty rough. It's not going to be a good edge on it. So you have to take a piece of sandpaper and take off those edges, take off those rough pieces. Now, what if this piece of wood could talk? What would it be saying right about now? Ouch. Hurts, doesn't it? The process of getting off those burrs, getting off those those rough pieces, getting off those splinters is a very painful process. Can I remind you, ladies and gentlemen, the process of sanctification stinks. It's harsh. But it's tempered oh so much more when a loving person comes along and says, I love you, you can't do that. Or, I love you, you shouldn't do that. Or, I love you, can we change what you're doing? We need it. And not only is it for stimulation, but for encouragement. We need to encourage each other. Your word encouragement has two interesting connections. Encourage. To fill someone with courage. And all of us at heart are cowards. We need somebody to come alongside us and fill us up with courage, fill us up with strength. Here at Northwest, we're we're committed to each other. We're committed to community. We hang out together for the purpose of building team. 
like Epaphras did with his Colossians. We do it so we can stimulate each other, so we can encourage each other. So where does that happen? It starts in the gathering, right here. It continues in life groups. Here's where the lettuce patch comes alive, where we're belonging to one another, growing in Christ together, serving one another in the community, and reaching out to the world together. In fact, this January, we're going to start a new emphasis with our life groups that allows us to break down the vision of our church into bite-sized chunks that we can all attain to as we seek to pull this whole body into doing life together. One of our goals is going to be not just to have folks who come here on Sunday and walk away, but to have every single attender of Northwest Church involved in a life group. And finally, Northwest flourishes in ministry. As we find ways to serve the Lord, we extend the love and community of Christ to those who are around us. Imagine the time it would have taken for one person at the Christian Life Home to spread 20 yards of mulch. Brian, imagine how long it would have taken if Bruce had to dig that ditch by himself. As it was with, what, 10 guys? Took half a day? Unbelievable. The power of team, the joy of being together changes lives. Life does not have to be spent alone. Listen to this particular thought as we close. An Irish writer who tells the story of a strander, a lover who was stranded at the altar at his wedding. Here was his soliloquy on that traumatic event. To think that only yesterday I was cheerful, bright, and gay, looking forward to, but who wouldn't to, the role I was about to play. But if to knock me down, reality came around, and without so much as a mere touch, cut me into little pieces, leaving me to doubt all about God and his mercy. For if he really does exist, why did he desert me in my hour of need? I truly am indeed alone again, naturally. It seems to me that there are more hearts broken in this world that can't be mended. They're left unattended. What do we do? What do we do? What we do is we exert ourselves in the discipline of community and we extend the love of a Christ that says, come to me, of a God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you, of a family who's bound together by their gatherings, who's held together by their love and commitment to serve one another, to communicate with each other, to pray for one another. A family who is driven by their compassion for those around them and include them in their lives. That's something a world can get excited about seeing. And that's something, if you're here this morning and you don't know that kind of a God, he waits for you. You don't have to be lonely anymore.